We've often said on this program we talk about Everton too much. They seem to always come up. But the motto for the show today is Everton as while we can, let's say. While they fall under the show's remit, while they are still a Premier League side, we will devote as many minutes of on-air time as we can. I nearly said demote, and I think that was a Freudian slip because Frank Lampard's men are going down the tubes, a brave supporter wearing his heart on his sleeve and his colours on his chest. Oscar Rutherford, welcome back to the EPL show. Thanks, Josh. No, I'm glad, I'm glad you do that intro because I wouldn't have give, done it justice in that way. I wouldn't have built it up quite <laughs> like that because it's a bit more depressing from my end. But, you know, here we are. As you say, wear it whilst, whilst you can. This this will appear a bit more inappropriate next season. So, figured. I, I was about to go. I was about to go down the route of making a reference to this to a song by Dido, but I think that's actually too old for you to understand. No, of Dido. I know no angel. There's a song. Okay. From Dido. Well, she has a line. I will go down with this ship, and it looks like ah. that's exactly what you're doing. Because you've distanced yourself from Everton uh, <laughs> on this program. You, you've, you've tried to create some separation. You tried to manage the PR disaster of joining FNR as an Everton fan mm. this season. Mm. But now, proudly displayed if you're watching the stream. Oh, yeah, but no, no. You should big up your Everton thing so you can contrast with Nick Hughes, who isn't even here anymore, no. Josh. Well, so, he's, you know, he's, he's too busy enjoying life at Western United, yeah. bound for the Premier's play. But uh, how are you feeling after watching... What was less a game at Anfield and more of like an ideological mission statement by Frank Lampard. He was thinking back to his playing days, I think, thinking back to the famous results that he might have got away at Anfield against Mm. Liverpool. And perhaps it was that fateful day that they robbed Liverpool of the Premier League title under Jose Mourinho uh, when... Steven Gerrard slipped over and Denver Bar raced her on goal. Frank Lampard, age 35, was, was playing in central midfield then. He thought that's, that's the formula for success. We won't participate in this match. We're going to start the time wasting mm. at the 20-minute mark. I think Jose Mourinho would have looked at that game and gone, what are you doing to the beautiful game? That's what he would have said. <laughs> Jose Mourinho would, would be disgusted by what... what Even Jose did, but, yeah, would have did. turned up his nose at such... Such football terrorism. Would have got, I've got better things to do than watch this. It's not just about winning. There's, there's, there's an art form to this game which has been neglected in its entirety. Yeah, that's right. Um, look, the first hour, from an Everton perspective, the first hour was actually kind of, I was fine. It was good. It was, it was, I was happy. And there's, I, I think that you, one You has, and nobody else. No one watching that game no, was happy. I agree. I agree. That, that that was a very specific experience of Everton supporters up to that point of, of accepting the fact that the only way that Everton were ever going to get anything out of that game was by doing something akin to what Frank Lampard set up to do. And to be fair, it quite nearly worked, kind of, almost. I'd say in the second half, Everton created a couple of really good chances and, you know, Anthony Gordon and... Um, Richarlison and the like had some opportunities which went begging. So I, I, I think it was the right thing to do. I mean, you could argue it doesn't take a genius to work that out. Um, I thought we've made fun of Frank Lampard and the way he... Oh, and we'll continue to. And will continue to for the messages he sends to the media about how he wants his side to win football games by being tougher and stronger and having the having the the bollocks the, the manly equipment yeah that, that's indeed yep and 
the way that like that that approach was reflected at Anfield. That 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 those messages actually have some merit when you're trying to set up and play a way that is completely anti-football. And so I think for that reason, it kind of seemed to make some sense and and almost achieved some kind of outcome. Um, I know Everton as a club are upset about Anthony Gordon not winning the penalty. Um, I, I the, you know, there were some amazing stats coming out of that game at halftime in terms of how long the ball was actually in play. I think Jim, Be- Be- Jim Beglin gave us the stat at the start of the second half. And in the first half, the ball was in play for 28 minutes and 20 seconds, which which is a remarkable effort, I I, I think, to just ruin the game to that degree. I think that... um. On that note, I was amazed that the first half only had three minutes of added time because Jordan Pickford's goal kicks alone took about a minute each, and there were like seven of them. So I'm, I'm, it was a remarkable. I say remarkable. That's probably being too kind. It was a memorable. It was a a distinct half of football. Yes, it happened, and people will remember it for what it was, which was atrocious. Um, you know, it was it was a very distinctive game plan, let's say. And I'm busy rustling up the passing stats on the computer here yeah. for each player, and they make for some quite remarkable reading. Yeah. Do you want to guess how many passes Mason Holgate managed to complete across the 90 minutes? Across the 90 minutes? Uh, seven? Four. Four? Okay. Completed four passes. Four. Alan managed to complete one pass. Mm-hmm. And only attempted five. Mm. That's that's incredible. Like, I think if I played in a Premier League game, I could complete two passes. I, I reckon I could do it. I, you know, that's an incredible commitment to. Well, I was going to say the craft, but he wasn't crafting anything. The thing is, though, it worked. Like, and I know that doesn't say much. Did it? Did it work? But it kind of it did, though. For the first, the first shot Liverpool had on target was the goal that they scored, the opening goal. I don't know how many teams we've seen actually stifle mm. Liverpool. Now, of course, other teams have gone with more intent to win than we saw from Everton. But even teams that are going there to play for a draw haven't been as effective at just completely crapping their way to a nil-nil for an hour as Everton were. And, you know, it kind of the game changed with the substitutions. Of course, Steve Okarigi came on and, of course, he scored because that's what Steve Okarigi does in all games and against Everton and whatever, and that's fine. Um, but up, up to the point of the substitutions, it, it, it worked quite well and Frank Lampard, I think, reflected that in his post-match. He was actually rather complimentary of the players and was happy with how they, they did it was things. complimentary of the game plan as well. I guess he came up with that. Yeah, well, in, exactly. Yeah. You know, it was really funny when they kept cutting to Jurgen Klopp, who was just clearly furious. Like, he just wasn't... He was biting his lip the whole time. He was just deadpan. He mm. was giving absolutely nothing. He was... He couldn't believe what he was seeing. But, you know, didn't work. Liverpool won. Everton are behind Burnley. Burnley beat Wolves, didn't they? Having beaten Southampton a few days earlier. Um, uh... They Ever- are where they are. Everton are going down. It's, it, I, I don't see how that doesn't happen. I, I know that Everton have a game in hand and, you know, there are a couple of winnable games. There's a game against Watford, I seem to recall. I think that there's a home game against Crystal Palace, which if Everton are going to have any chance of surviving, they're going to need to win near the end. But, like, what, Chelsea on the weekend, Leicester, uh, Arsenal, Brentford, like, 
Maybe you I, I, I want to take issue with this because I don't think it's the right game plan to go to Anfield with. I don't, and I don't mean that you should go there and try and Marcelo Bielsa your way out of trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's silly as well. I think there is some kind of balance to be struck between being defensive, very resilient and responsible and frustrating Liverpool and sitting behind the ball and abandoning any pretense of attacking whatsoever so that, I mean, they had no outlet. They had nothing. Well, I kind of disagree. I think that there were a few times, particularly in the first 15 minutes of the second half, where Everton did get Was on that when break. Alan completed his single pass? Well, quite possibly. Like, it's... It... <laughs> and things were looking up around then, yeah. Well, but, like, and I, and I mean that, yeah. Like, that, that, that Everton... I, I felt as if scored. I felt as if Everton had no chance of scoring whatsoever, mm. and that meant Liverpool were comf- comfortable bringing Origi on and throwing players forward because they knew that there was no threat behind. They had no seed of doubt in their mind, and that's why I think that's why I go back from the start of the show to the example of the Liverpool Chelsea game from all those years ago in 2014, I think it was. Yeah, Brent Rogers' side had not won anything. They had the, I guess, the sort of Damocles hanging over them with this title push and, and, you know, they weren't expected to win anything. Um, And suddenly they were in a position where they had to win that game and they didn't have players who'd been in that situation before who knew how to deal with it. You know, Suarez has been having the season of his life. But if you go back and watch that game, there's incredible urgency to everything they do. Even from the first half, they're desperate. They're desperate and they're panicked. And Steven Gerrard suddenly decided, I need to take this all on my own two shoulders. And he ended up having nine shots from the base of midfield, <laughs> which, you know, uh, he tried to do Rover, War of the Rovers impression. So that, that reflected a team that was not mature in its development along the path to actually becoming, you know, a trophy winning side. This Liverpool team is entirely different. They've been in that situation before. They've faced many a team who's tried to kill the game and put everyone behind the ball and, and just muck it up, essentially. And... Liverpool's Achilles heel for me over the last few seasons has been the high defensive line and the amount of one-on-one chances that they can concede if you play direct balls in behind. But Everton just didn't have any runners in position for those because they were so deep. Nice. So deep. And they weren't taking the chance to counter a lot of the time. You talk about when Pickford makes saves, you know, the he thought he was being smart and, and funny and it is easy to do it nil nil in the first half to collapse with the ball in your hands and roll around on the ground and make a big show of the fact that you're, you're blatantly wasting time. Obviously that comes back to bite him with Allison doing the same routine back at him uh, in the second half when, uh, when Liverpool had finally scored. I, but I just felt as if they, they didn't seize upon their opportunities to counterattack because it wasn't even on their radar to try and, sow the seed of doubt in Liverpool's mind and push them back a little bit and prevent Liverpool from the all-out onslaught that it became. It became a matter of inevitability. And I, I, I just think Frank Lampard's game plan is antiquated. And for such a young manager to come into the league with such an antiquated view of how football is played, I think that's the reason why he's failed as a manager at Chelsea and I think he's failed now at, at, at Everton. Nine shots. Everton had nine shots in that game. I think uh, now I accept that some of those would be audacious, unlikely, low percentage shots. But yeah, one on target. Let's not get carried away here. Sure, but you know, Anthony Gordon had that penalty shot. That doesn't come about if you have no attacking intent whatsoever. Richarlison, you know, was buzzing around the box trying to make a nuisance of himself. I mean, the game against Manchester United a few games prior, United had two shots. Now I'm not 
I'm not suggesting that Manchester United at the moment are the pinnacle of what one should aspire to. But I mean to say that what Everton... And I mean, Manchester United played five at the back. They did something different. But Everton did a way better job than a team mm. like Manchester United at making things hard for Liverpool. And I kind of think that Everton created better chances or gotten better positions than Manchester United as well. And if they're the options, then I think that Frank Lampard gave himself the best chance or it gave his side the best chance of getting something from that game. I just object to Lampard coming out in the post-match and saying what they did was smart. Because you can't you can't say that after you've after you've lost in that fashion and after you know I mean it, it really is the Pickford moment that actually grates when you look back at it because he's just he's just wasting time and there's no sense of yeah even a pretense of trying to go up the other end and score in that moment and I just don't think you can afford to do that when you're in Everton's position how much good does a point really do them like. You know, a point would have been great, but I just feel as if you, you have to participate in the game if you're going to have any, any chance. I, I felt as if um, when Brighton went to Liverpool earlier in the season, they had a much more refined game plan, or even Brentford, teams that tried to trouble them by getting the ball in behind into wide areas, by getting players into counter-attacking positions um, you know, straight off the bat, as soon as the goalkeeper gets the ball, it's launched. Um, you know, they've got players running in behind the fullbacks, long diagonals. Like there was a specific attacking game plan around how are we going to trouble Liverpool. And I just didn't feel as if Everton had that because the entire mentality going into it was let's frustrate them. And I just don't think that's effective against a team that's, you know, they look like they're playing a different sport to Everton right now. Yeah, I, look, I mean, maybe it's something that we just won't come to an agreement on because I, if, Everton, if Everton did anything else, it would have been worse. That's just, that's just all I believe. I don't, I don't... It's a defeatist mentality, Oscar. But, but it's, have you watched Everton this season? I have. It's, 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 but it's true. But it's just, with no belief in the team belief. and your players, with no belief whatsoever, you know, how does that... You're right, how the does shortcoming that is belief in this well, how does, how does How does that make the players feel if they don't feel that they're the manager has any faith in them actually going up the end, other end and, and scoring a goal. They're saying, we're here to frustrate Liverpool. You know, the, the, the Everton have a much better squad than the kinds of teams which usually adopt this sort of, this sort of mentality in these big games. So, anyway, I guess we're, uh, we're at loggerheads here, so we may as well take a break and uh, <laughs> move on to other topics. But uh, Everton, what's the, the grim picture like for them at the bottom of the table at the moment? Yeah, well, so obviously dropped into the relegation zone at this point, uh, just getting up their remaining matches. So six Premier League matches left are games against Chelsea, Arsenal, Leicester, uh, ones that will be tough to get anything from. With that being said, Chelsea and Leicester have rather tired squads who've been playing a lot of games. So, I mean, Everton got a draw with Leicester just a few days ago, actually, now that I think about it. So... They're not lost courses, perhaps? Maybe? Maybe I'm being ridiculous. Mm. Um, and then, as I say, a game away to Watford, which obviously have to win, and a game at home to Crystal Palace and at home to Brentford, which I would say are kind of also must-wins, to to be cliche, because when you compare that to Burnley, who we will talk more about Burnley uh, later on in the show, but you know they've, they're also playing Watford. But Burnley's... 
I, I, I'm changing my mind mid-sentence. They've got five games left. They've got games against Spurs and Newcastle, who are... Newcastle are playing really mm. well. Uh, and then two games against Aston Villa, who are not playing well, but are a better team than Burnley. So... Well... So Everton obviously need to win a couple of games to get back ahead of Burnley. But it's... Other than the game against Watford... Yeah, uh, I'm. I'm. T- I'm literally changing my mind as You're I flip flopping. Yeah, could they beat Villa? They could beat Villa. Villa aren't playing well. Are Villa going to beat Burnley twice? That doesn't seem. I don't think so. Probably not. Burnley will find a way to get a point. Mm. You know, I, I. I think you're probably right. I think they are going down. Um, will they bounce straight back up and and be a Fulham like yo-yo club? Not sure, but uh, yeah, we'll <laughs> see. Um, I, I do think, the last word on this, last complaint about okay. Frank Lampard, because I have been pushing this agenda for some time now. <laughs> He's the third third youngest manager in the in the competition behind, um, only younger managers are Gerard and Arteta from, from memory. He's come into these jobs with no new ideas. I feel like his, his footballing persona has been poisoned by so many years of playing under Mourinho that he's unable to think of anything outside the mid-2000s paradigm that he's living in. And I, I just don't see what he adds to Everton and what he adds to the league beyond name recognition. I, I'm not here to defend Frank Lampard as a manager, though. I, I'm, I might think that what he did against Liverpool was the right thing. But no, I agree with a large amount of what you've just said. Yeah, I, I, I don't think he's done anything mm. particularly good. I know the stats flown around that Lampard's got more points since taking over at Everton than Gerrard's got at Villa in that time period which is funny and weird. Mm. But, you know... Gerrard's also won Scottish Premiership with Rangers, so he's got a few more runs under his belt. Indeed, and in terms of what's a sustainable long-term approach and building and whatever, like Everton have none of that, and we know that that the... as, As you say, what Lampard's done in his previous jobs as well haven't exactly given the indication that he will take this and build on it and grow in a way that we can perhaps expect more from Steven Gerrard. So I, I'm, I'm, I don't... And when I don't he inevitably need... gets the sack at Everton, you know, where does he go from here? Who's going to employ him? Indeed. Yeah, no, absolutely. Back I, to the championship, if anything. I can't, I'd be amazed if another Premier League club went to Frank Lampard after this. Well, because, but even if he keeps, if he keeps Everton up, I don't want him at the club. Mm. Like, I, 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 you want him sacked either way. He's not a hiding to nothing with the supporters now. It's, it's indeed. Sam Allardyce, sorry. Like, it's it's the same kind of idea. It's mm. not really about... It, it's it's a club like Everton is does not spend the amount of money that it does to have people who will stagnate and keep the club stable. They're going to want... Bring back David Moyes. They're going to want someone who will... Speaking of keeping the club stable. Yeah, well, and that's the epitome of what David Moyes has done, but David Moyes isn't a sufficiently ambitious appointment for what Everton will be wanting to do, and I say that tongue-in-cheek because so much of this is appearance and artificial of what's Mm. viewed as a sufficient... And look, I think the thing to remember in all of this is how unfortunate Everton were to lose Ancelotti because, you know, those kinds of circumstances... It's not too often that Everton lose a manager because Real Madrid come calling. Uh, That feels like quite a... A niche period of history where that where those series of events have taken place, and you know, not, I'm not. It's easy to look back and have rosy cheeks with what rosy cheeks in rose tinted glasses. Rose coloured glasses. 
I don't know. I guess the people that you're looking at have rosy cheeks due to the color of the glasses that you're wearing. Yeah, yep. rosy cheeks. You, we have rosy cheeks thinking <laughs> about Carlo Ancelotti being mm, the manager. Yeah, we get hot flushes. <laughs> yeah. you know, with, you know, just his, his little raised eyebrow gets the pulse racing. It does. That's right. Um, and, of course, he had a whole bunch of his own problems and things weren't all good at that time either. But they just, weren't all rosy cheeked. They were not all rosy cheeked, but just compared to now, it's, yeah, I... And ultimately, Everton deserve what they get. You know, they've made more bad decisions than any other club. There's yep. stat going around about Everton having a higher net spend than Liverpool since 2015 or 2016, yep. which goes to show that this institution has been run into the ground by poor ownership. So at the end of the day, it's not Frank Lampard's fault. He's a result of a uh, poor chain of decision make, makers uh, at the club, which... Brings us on to the topic we'll tackle after the break, Manchester United. Mm-hmm. We've also got Manchester City's win over Real Madrid in the Champions League to talk about and Sean Dyche's, bra- Sean Dyche's exit from Burnley. That's Excuse good. me, just misspoke there a little bit. Mm. Uh, they're fighting against relegation too and, uh, and might scrape by. We'll, uh, we'll talk about that on the other side of this break here on the EPL Show. Here I was thinking Fulham was the only club who were going to have a statue of Michael Jackson outside their grounds. Well, if Mike Jackson keeps Burnley up following Sean Dyche's departure from his long-held position, they might as well erect him a monument outside Turf Moor. What have you made of this, Oscar? Here on the EPL show on FNR, by the way. Uh, Burnley getting rid of Sean Dyche. It doesn't feel right. It feels it feels like we lost a member of the family. I'm in mourning. I'm just gonna point out for everyone that um Josh did ask during the break what he what how how he should introduce Mike Jackson. He didn't have anything, and he's just come up with that in the last thirty seconds. The the the, the statue gag, and full credit to you, Josh. That was well well, well thought up of. Well. I was trying to make a link to Michael Jackson in English football, and mm. it suddenly it suddenly just clicked. You know. Yeah. Clicked. It, it, it's a talent. It comes to us. Yeah, um, you know. Sean Dyche is gone. It's really sad, to be honest. It's sad and it's not like, you know, we, he. I don't think many of us watched his football with absolute amazement and awe, but he had... He brought personality in spades and he did a really good job at Burnley and he made them a really stable top flight team. He certainly brought personality. He's, he certainly did for a very long time and... and you know, I, I, I was surprised. I think everyone was surprised. And I, you know, it's, it's harder to say now that a few more games have been played, two more, three more games Burnley have played, of which they've won two and drawn with West Ham. So now it's a bit harder to say that I disagree with the decision. But if you'd asked me a week ago, I would have said that I thought mm. it was the wrong decision because I didn't see any way that anyone could do a better job than what we've seen from Sean Dyche. But apparently Mike Jackson can Apparently, Mike Jackson can take Ben Mee from the pitch, putting in, put him in his coaching staff, and turn this team into a, a side which picks up wins over teams that have been good this season, like Southampton and Wolves. They're moonwalking their way out of the relegation battle. They are. They are. It's. It would be funny if it didn't hurt so much. That's right. And you know, it's just to, just to finish on Sean Dyche. I mean, I know that if you look at his last series of games, he didn't win much. Uh, with the exception of Everton. Um, 
and you know the, the final game of his tenure was the was the lost Norwich where Burnley didn't look very good. And if you lose to Norwich, then you know, much like if Norwich beats anyone, you have to sack the yeah, manager immediately. That's right. Just don't play Norwich if you if you're a if you're a manager. <laughs> um, I mean, mind you, we're talking about Everton and Burnley. We've kind of skimmed over the fact that Norwich and Watford are near certainly going down at this point. Oh, well, everyone knows about yeah, that. It's not, it's, it's, it's not not as fun. You know, Norwich, we're always going to be cannon fodder in this competition. And, you know, Watford I had higher hopes of, but you never quite know what you're going to get with Watford, with the inconsistency in the playing squad and, indeed, management. So sometimes they hit upon a formula. Other times they miss the mark. Um you know, I think they'll be a decent championship side next season and might be within a shout of uh, of doing a Fulham, so to speak. Mm. Let's talk about Fulham pitch invasion at Craven <laughs> Cottage. Last round, I expected to see a pitch invasion at, to be honest, the genteel end of, yes. of London. Well, and this is what Fulham do, isn't it? They mm. get promoted and they get relegated. It's very nice to see. I'm not, it's amazing that the fans can be so excited by this at this point. Like, surely they've seen this show before and they know how, how the movie ends. I read something which said that Norwich and Fulham haven't played each other in a league game since, like, 2015 or something. <laughs> and they've just seen just, trading places. They've just been trading places for that <laughs> low, which I think is just so funny. It's like that, you know, th- those scenes in the Scooby-Doo cartoon where the villain <laughs> runs through one door and they run out the other. But it, it is it is just like that. Yeah. I, I couldn't have said it better. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. And I, you know, we kind of add Fulham don't just return to the Premier League after a season. They also have Alexander Mitrovic come back and everyone goes, Maybe this time for real, he'll actually score goals in the Premier League, something like he scores them in the Championship. Um, and the ads will be probably not, but it'll be fun to see. I see that they've signed um, Harry Wilson on a permanent from Liverpool. Mm. So, you know, it felt like last time Fulham came up, we were all a bit, oh, well, you know, they could do some stuff. They've got some. Well, we were all excited about the money splurge yeah, that's right. last time out with Jean Michael Serry mm. and Andre Schurler and all these, these Schurler. you know interesting foreign players that they brought in who were slightly past their prime. Mm. They spent an awful lot of cash on those guys, over £100 million when they came up. Maybe they're going to be slightly more conservative and and smart with their money this time around. Maybe they've learned from that experience. Yeah, and it's fun to see Marco Silva back in the Premier League. It is fun to see Marco Silva back. I was always a big defender of his. I I thought he did well at, at Hull despite going down. I watched a lot of those games. I thought he was good at Watford. At Everton... It didn't pan out so well, but a lot of managers have failed at Everton, so maybe it wasn't Marco Silva's fault. <laughs> yeah. No, I, and you know, you, I kind of agree with your assessment there, even though he, he he did some okay things at Everton, but I wonder how, you know, so much of it of the attention was taken away by some of the strange signings we made around that time and for large amounts of money mm. and how much control did he have over the squad that was being built. I'm not entirely clear. But, yeah, no, I, I think, you know, Marco Silva's done well, Um Seems likely that Fulham are going to be joined by Bournemouth. That's not confirmed yet, though. So it's. I'm not super excited to be honest. Like there was a bit of buzz about Leeds going up. Obviously, mm. there's no such storyline in the Championship this season. I mean, maybe we'll get something through the playoffs, but I'm not super excited to see Bournemouth back. Mm. Like, you know, Fulham. I guess they'll take a different approach to last time, and they're one of those teams that I associate with being in the Premier League. Like they're a big club, even if people, you know, mock the lack of atmosphere or what have you. Um, Bournemouth, probably a better atmosphere at that ground, but I don't know. It's just a bit same old, isn't it? I guess no Eddie Howe. There's just there's a slightly different outfit there. But well, and, and so I, I suppose the team that looks most likely to go up with those two, or perhaps even usurping Bournemouth in second place, would be Nottingham Forest, who continue to pick up 
really impressive wins with Steve I Cooper. Would be impre- I would be impressed if Nottingham Forest can finally do it. That would be great to see them back. And the way they started the season was just horrendous, and Steve Cooper's come in and done some pretty incredible things. So I, I think it would be really fun to see Forest back in the Premier League or back mm. in the top flight just for history reasons. Of course, Luton Town's another shout of a, of a club that looked almost dead and buried a few years ago, and they've somehow found their way back to a reasonable position and quite possibly getting promoted. Didn't they go down to non-league? Pretty sure they did. Uh, I'm fairly certain they were in the conference because I remember they lost a penalty shootout against AFC Wimbledon to get Mm. back into the Football League, and there was a big hoo-ha about that. But Luton had had their own fall from grace. So it's pretty amazing to see them fifth in the championship yeah. in the playoff places. That would be that would be a hell of a story. Um, yes, but Fulham and Bournemouth, perennial kind of teams at that level, and Bournemouth have just spent their way into this position. They've just splashed mm. the cash in the transfer windows, and I don't know. It's, it doesn't fill you with that sort of romantic sense of you know anything can happen in this this league because it's increasingly a quite a, a predictable league yes. the championship. The one factor I would say goes in Fulham's favour is that they make me feel nice. You know, you see their game, it looks nice. They look like a nice place. You yeah, know. Cra- I mean, time. it's called Craven Cottage, for, for goodness sake. Yeah. You know, it's, that sounds like a homely place to go for, a, you know, your cup of, cup and, of bovril. I would say the same thing for Bournemouth. I, Bournemouth makes me just feel, makes me feel warm and cosy. I don't, I don't know what it really, is. Really? On the south coast? It'd be pretty windy, I would have uh, thought. Sorry, maybe warm and cosy wasn't the correct characterization, but it, but it, but it, it feels relaxing. Mm. But no one, no one really has a problem with Bournemouth. No, they're the cherries. Yeah, they're the cherries. I, I, I know I say wearing the team shirt called the Toffees, but yeah, it's it's yeah, they're they're they're, they're, they're not offensive either of those teams. Posh is what we're talking about. They're <laughs> posh, posh teams, posh rich teams that nobody hates. That that's pretty much it. Actually, increasingly, I think Bournemouth is starting to uh, become the team that everyone's envious of and no one likes because they've spent so many years lapping up those Premier League pounds that uh, mm. it seems if they're above their station and they're no longer the underdogs that they once were when they got promoted. And the stratification of wealth in football in general, including English football, is taking its hold as we see the same teams go up and down over and over, which, you know, suggests that Everton will be able to come back up. But, you know, tell me that, Sunderland, I don't know. So, you know, we'll see. Well, after that diversion into yeah. uh, dialectics and... Mm. Uh, you know, footballing classism. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about Manchester United, uh, old money bags. Uh, the, so much money they don't know what to do with. They've decided to put it behind Ajax manager Eric Ten Hag, who will take up the role next season after he finishes his campaign with Ajax and tries to win that league title. What do you make of this appointment, Oscar? Do you think it is the right one to get Manchester United, as Rio Ferdinand would say, back? I, I'm i really not sure how much of getting Manchester United back is about the manager, which I know sounds like a silly thing to say, but it's just if you have a squad that is so incoherent and you have an approach to managing a football club that is so illogical and nonsensical and counterproductive, I... I you know, there's a, there, then there's a really clear ceiling that Eric Ten Hag has, no matter how good of a manager he is, and he could well be a brilliant manager. Well, I, well, sorry, he's proven himself to be a brilliant manager, whether that translates into the Premier League. Mm. It, it could well, but what's the best... You know, that that's not going to help the team compete with Liverpool and Manchester City. So it's how, how far can that take a United team? 
I think I think it is the right appointment, and I I think they've gone against name recognition because they could have hired Mauricio Pochettino. He wanted yep. the job. PSG were pretty relaxed about letting him go after they went out of the Champions League like that against Real Madrid. They could have gone for the name recognition brand and and gone with a guy who likes to play a more combative style of football, but they've gone with a guy who they think can try and, over the course of a couple of years, elevate them to the level at which Manchester City and Liverpool are playing. But I think that's the key is that over a couple of years, this this isn't going to turn Manchester United back into title challenges. Like that, that's such I, a I think the fans and the club have got used to the fact that they're no longer yeah. the big boys anymore, and they it's can't the quick fix doesn't exist. Whether they have the right staff uh, in terms of like a recruitment strategy, football strategy level to actually pull that off, um, the right director of football, because the, the guy who's in charge at the moment, John Murto. What do we know about him and his football philosophy and, and what's guiding these decisions? I don't know. Not a, not a great deal. Um, but in Eric Ten Hag, I hope, what I hope is that they've signed up for more of a long-term project mm. with a guy who has a clearly defined style of play that he wants to implement that is in line with modern football principles. They haven't signed a past their prime super coach on name recognition like Mourinho or Van Gaal who you know were relevant top-level managers once upon a time but were on the tail end of their careers when they got to Manchester United. Ten Hag, they're signing him in his pomp in, yep. at his peak and he's proven that he can do a lot with far fewer resources at Ajax and play an attractive, exciting brand of high-pressing, high-octane possession football, which is where the top teams... That's, that's the style the top teams play, a variation upon that. And I'm excited by it, to be honest. And I'm also... Uh, looking at a certain Everton loanee who might be uh, pretty happy with that appointment as well. It might be a reprieve for Donny van der Beek. Yeah. Don't know why I had to bring it back to Everton, but I, I take your point nonetheless. What? It's just because I'm staring at the jersey. Yeah, no, it's fair enough. Um, I, I think what I meant to say when I said how much does the manager matter for Manchester United is that the manager doesn't matter if they continue to just, you know, get rid of him if he doesn't get immediate success, which I know mm. is an unfair criticism to level at Manchester United because they stuck with Solskjaer for quite a, a while. They gave Solskjaer so many chances, yeah. so many second chances when the guy clearly didn't have a cohesive style or plan he wanted to implement. 100%. And I think that the Ten, the Ten Hag appointment you can view in a similar way to the Ragnik appointment in the way of just in the way of not going out for the biggest name but rather going out for a, at least this is still based on appearances or what we assume mm. uh, a more long-term project sustainable philo- philosophical overhaul at Manchester United. I'm I'm almost certain that Ranić is not going to take up any long-term role at the club. It's gone so badly Mm-mm. and so stale so quickly that I think he's out the door as the season ends. I don't think there wasn't much suggestion that he'd had in all of reporting around this appointment and the athletic articles and so forth. He didn't seem to have anything to do with the coaching appointment. They were talking about Fletcher and Murto and you know all these um, front office guys, and they didn't even mention Ranić. Mm. Ranić is this substitute teacher that they've got that none of the players respect because he's not going to be around for long, and we haven't seen much evidence of his you know style of football translating to this group or him communicating that effectively to the team. He's got no authority whatsoever. 
And I think he's going to be the answer to a trivia question in 10 years' time. We won't even remember that he was there. I, I really I really think he's out the door. I don't see how, you know, and he was much more vaunted at the time that he had this, like, advisory role that he was mm. moving into that was a director of football in orbit in name. He doesn't seem very interested in sticking around. He seems to be totally checked out. He's on He's on the beach with the rest of the players. I think that irrespective of whether Ranyak stays and moves on to an advisory role, it shows a change a change in tack from Manchester United, a yep. change in what we want to do as a football club and who we want to be. It's hard to take that too seriously on such a small amount of evidence and over such a short period of time. But if Manchester United continue to take this approach and view it in a more long-term, modern, developed way, then I think that that's... that's the way to achieve long-term success. But, of course, it's so hard to measure that because Mm. it's a long-term project and we don't know what it's going to look like in five years. In a way that, you know, I think Jurgen Klopp had more credit in the bank, for example, at Liverpool. We knew what Jurgen Klopp could do in a more major or a more competitive European league than what we've seen from Eric Ten Hag. So I don't know if that will affect the patience of the Manchester United supporters and Manchester United as a football club. But in theory, I think it's an improved approach for Manchester United. I think so too. Um, The one question I have is about Ten Hag translating to a much more high-pressure environment. Like, Yes, Ajax is a big club, but everything there was setting him up for success. He had like full faith. The whole structure at Ajax is built around facilitating the kind of football that he wants to play and the youth academy structure is already all there. So, you know, he had every chance to succeed at Ajax. And going into a much bigger spotlight where people aren't just watching you for Champions League games, the world is watching every week, you can do funny things to a coach. It's sort of like the US presidency. You know, you saw Barack Obama after one term and he looked about 15 years (laughs) older. Uh, It does funny things to people. We've seen uh, many uh, a good coach, good inverted commas, big name uh, experienced coach come come into that job since Sir Alex Ferguson retired and wilt. So who knows what it's going to do on you know pressure and emotional level? We just don't know until he's in there. But based on CV, based on style of play, based on um, a manager who can transform this team over a longer period of time and create maybe a more sustainable flat platform for success rather than the Solskjaer-style new manager bounce that yeah. they got against, you know, lucking out against PSG or whatever. Um, that, that gives me a little bit of hope to cling to as a, as a United fan. But, of course, it'll be really interesting to observe how they go about squad management and player sales and rotation. I mean, the biggest news story of the week was, of course, that Paul Pogba has left the Manchester United WhatsApp chat. Um, it's like... He's you, gone. You talk about big breaking news stories, but Paul, Pag- Paul, 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 Pagba. Paul Pogba's decision to remove himself from, from that primal mode of communication, I think, is... It's, it's, it's huge. Is he, is he still in the, the, the Snapchat group? Yeah. You know? <laughs> Do you have groups on Snapchat? I think you can. I don't know. I don't really use it. We, we shouldn't have done that. That was, no. a, that was a bad I move. branched further outside <laughs> my technology. Is he still, I guess they don't use Facebook. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Pogs is gone. Like, yep. you know, the, apparently the offer was on the table for a massive improved contract for him. But I just think if he stays, he has no ambition as a footballer. 
Like, and if United re-sign him, they have no sense as a club. It's just better for everybody to to just part ways mutually. He leaves on a free, and he signs in Paris or wherever, you know, wherever will accommodate his, um, well, wherever can rehabilitate him from all the injuries that he's been getting, but also wherever he feels motivated as a footballer and comfortable, and will accommodate, I guess, the shortcomings in his game, and. No, that might be Paris. Certainly accommodate his wages in Paris. I, I think that's the most logical move for him, but we'll we'll see where he actually ends up. I just don't think I don't think we're gonna see him in a Manchester United shirt again. Do you think Ten Hag needs to get rid of players that like is the main thing getting clear rid out? of clear out or, or is it more about making more of the players that are already if there? If they don't if they don't buy in, if and my biggest concern is Bruno Fernandez, to be honest, because yep. he's such a star. Mm. Um, and he had such a good spell under Solskjaer. Um, you know, when he first came into the club, he's absolutely unplayable. But since his teams have worked him out a little bit, and the worse the team does, the more petulant and frustrating uh, he is to watch when he's just giving out to his teammates. And at the start, you know, this is Bruno Fernandes laying down the law to his teammates. Look at the leadership. But now it just seems to great. Like, mm-hmm. the bloke's just complaining when he doesn't do any defensive work. Yeah. And... I don't think that's going to fly under Ten Hag. If he's going to play in that midfield three, you can't be carried by your teammates. There's a reason why United have stuck to this double pivot of McTominay and Fred, and that's to accommodate Bruno Fernandes yep. not tracking back at all. And and um, Ranić has tried to accommodate him by moving him into one of the... I won't say out wide because he doesn't really play wide players, Ranić. Into one of the uh, two wide attacking midfield, inside, forward slots, whatever, Um, or even as one of the two strikers uh, to try and basically accommodate his preferences. I think that's the wrong move with Fernandez. I think you have to retrain him as a guy who isn't given special privileges. And I I think that's the problem with Manchester United at the moment is that there are too many players who are given special privileges. And that starts with Ronaldo and Bruno Fernandez. And... If those guys aren't going to buy into the new manager style of play, then they have to be shipped out. And if you can't sell them, got to leave them out of the squad until they leave and just give them the Mesut Ozil treatment. I think just you touching on the midfield, I think the midfield is the most interesting thing to see mm. what Manchester United do going forward. Oh, play. that's going to be totally reshaped. I mean, I can't see Ten Hag working with a player like Fred no. or McTominay maybe, but I don't, I don't think so. I don't so. even think McTominay's got a spot. Maybe he's a centre-back, like he plays yep. for Scotland. Yeah, That's the only way I can see him fitting into Ten Hag's, I guess, philosophy. Van der Beek will almost certainly come back into the first-team picture and hopefully regain some confidence playing under his former coach. But I think that will be the area where they try and make signings. Yeah. And who they bring in will be really, really, really interesting. Because there are some just – it feels easy to forget, but there are some really good players at Manchester United. I, I, you know, the game against Arsenal, you saw – that's probably not the best example, but we saw – I mean, Anthony Alanga and Jaden Sancho are both brilliant. They both absolutely can do really good things for, a lot, for, for, a, for an extended period of time for Manchester United. So I feel like maximising those two players, for example – there's so much room for growth in this Manchester United side. Aaron Wambasaka, what's happened to Aaron Wambasaka? Because when he came to Manchester United, he came as one of the mm. most exciting fullbacks in the league at Crystal Palace. And I, there's I, been no player development in Manchester United no. for years. And Players have stagnated there. But that's what's exciting about Ten Hag is 
the potential for that to change and to see some of these really good young players actually develop and see what he can do when... And really, I'm just trying to make a whole point about how this all revolves around the midfield because the midfield is just the most important part of the pitch and it affects how the whole rest of the team functions. And if Manchester United can find a way, a midfield structure that maximises those other players, that will be fun to watch and that will be exciting for Manchester United if they can unlock those things, I think. I've long held that Aaron Wan-Bissaka's future in the game is as a right-sided centre-back in a back three, a la Cesar Azpilicueta's reinvention at, at Chelsea in, in recent seasons. Because I just don't think he has yep. the technical ability or the ability to just dribble with the ball at speed. He's just not good enough. Sure. So, and he's not good enough with his crossing and his end product. So I don't see him fitting into Ten Hag's system because he likes to get his fullbacks forward. Yep. I could be proven wrong. Maybe he just needs some better coaching and he'll he'll improve in that regard when Bissaka he's still young, but he seems to have lost motivation and stalled as a player. And that just shows I guess United's profligacy with, with these guys. Like you look at Liverpool signing of Andy Robinson, for example, a much less heralded player from Hull City, and now he's now the best left back in the league and maybe the best left back in in the world. Mm. He's up there anyway. Um and then versus a fifty million pound splurge on um, a much more, uh, you know, people were much more excited about Wayne Bissaka. You know, he might, much more, arrived to much more fanfare, let's say, from Crystal Palace. And he's the same player or worse as when he got there. Yeah. And, yeah, that's, I mean, we we're talking about clubs spending poorly and making poor signing decisions. I think it's also what you do with the talent when they're at the club. And that's a area in which United has failed miserably. And I think that's also, you know, back to Everton. That's an area where Everton have failed as well. Those players have stagnated. Marcus Rashford, that's another name, just of, of a player who, mm. uh, you know, and I hear your point, maybe Wan-Bissaka or even Rashford don't fit in the Ten Hag way, but, that, but there will be a chance to reassess those players and see if they can sure. evolve, become something new, add something extra to their game so that they can fit into that. Well, I, I mean... The Athletic notorious for uh, for puff pieces when new managers come in, but I did have a read of all that that coverage, and apparently Ten Hag had some very considered thoughts on how to turn Manchester United around, which players he would keep, which players he was thinking of shipping out, where they needed to make signings. You know, he had it all in his head already, so he's clearly coming in with some sort of plan, and that's I think what swung at the appointment in his favour, according to the reporting anyway was that he had this this plan in mind, whereas Pochettino was much more of a, you know, you know who I am, you know, yep. just appoint me and then I'll get to work kind of kind of guy. Yep. Whereas Ten Hag had, uh, came in to that, those conversations with a lot more of a concrete idea in mind. And that takes the pressure off, I guess, the higher-ups in Manchester United who are copying so much flack of late that if this manager does have a clear vision and yep. they're willing to give him the chance to realise it. Yeah, it's interesting times, interesting times. Um, and it's the first time since Ferguson departed that I've actually been excited about a manager that United have appointed. Like, first time. Um, you know, I wasn't excited about Solskjaer, that's for sure. Um, and just on, you know, club legend NRI mm. status and his only experience was at Cardiff and Mulder. Um, Mourinho was kind of funny to compete with Guardiola by signing Mourinho and, and just turning heel, but mm. <laughs> I knew that wasn't going to last. Um, and Van Hal, I mean, 
just it's a joke. Like the the way he was allowed to, uh, or affiliated agents were allowed to run the joint and just exploit the largesse of the club was a, was a complete joke. So I'm I'm excited for the first time. I have got some hope in my heart. I'm just shocked by who's bringing out the wrestling references now on this in this format. That's pretty much the <laughs> that's that's uh, pretty much the most basic reference you can make in in the wrestling world. But uh, yeah, it was, when Jose Mourinho is involved, it's always a little bit more uh, let's say theatrical. Sure, so, well, he's got a lot of mention, mentions tonight. He's uh, he still lives <laughs> rent free in my head, apparently. <laughs> You know, his, uh, his celebrations uh, after United won the Europa League holding uh, three fingers up mm. to, to count not only the Europa League and the League Cup that they won that season, but also the Community yeah. Shield, which he counted as one of the trophies. Yeah. Um, just what a, what a guy. Just <laughs> <laughs> um, Anyway, I'm, I'm rambling now as we head past the, the 9 p.m. mark, so uh, you better move us on to any other topics we should hit before we go, Oscar. Let's... I mean, you mentioned Mourinho. He's, of course, now with Roma. Uh, and Roma are the opponents of Leicester City in the mm. upcoming Conference League semifinals. Of course, also Manchester City played in the Champions League this morning. Liverpool yeah, let's talk about that game before we go. Yes. Because that was crazy. That was, I mean, I wouldn't say it was an all-time classic. It was just that Real Madrid were, to use another wrestling term, it felt like the game had been blocked, like it had been <laughs> fixed. Um, not because I felt there was anything under wood, but just it felt as if Manchester City were clear and far away the better team and should have won by 10 goals, let alone, you know. Mm. Uh, it, w- it was ridiculous how dominant they were. And then Real Madrid just kept scoring to keep themselves in it and keep the match interesting and keep the viewers engaged until the final whistle. Yeah. <laughs> they they certainly played their part, uh, but City were overwhelmingly the better side and on a different planet to this Real Madrid team who seem to be from, uh, despite their affinity for winning Champions League matches when they don't really deserve to, they uh, they seem to be from a, almost another era. I think Gabriel Jesus has, mm. I think it's been like the best month of football I've seen him play at Manchester City. I've seen him play a number of times and I've been super impressed by what he brings because that hasn't always been the case. It's been easy for him to kind of drift out of games and not really have an influence. But, you know, the game against Liverpool in the Premier League, that was a few weeks ago. There's Champions League this morning and just in the the Premier League games in between that time, he's found a way to influence this team a lot more and he provides such a structure to this Manchester City side. And although he's not a huge target player, he... I think really adds something. Well, when Gabriel Jesus is playing well, I think that's the best Manchester City have looked. Yeah, I I agree, and I think he was crucial in that match. Obviously, he scored the goal, but, but even the run he made he off the four ball, goals on the weekend. Yes, yep. um, you know that that'll uh, put you in Pep's plans for a big Champions yeah. League match. You know, the most conventional lineup I've ever seen Pep pick in a game of this importance. You know, usually he gets in his own head and, and does something weird. You know, he will go completely strikerless or yeah. you know, change the formation. I remember that game against Leon or with that ridiculous formation and, you know, Sterling missing from point blank range and uh, the Champions League final, of course, deciding to just not play a defensive midfielder. Mm. But uh, Gabby Jesus says the more conventional number nine, having a player whose instinct is to run into the six-yard box creates space for other players because when they don't play with a center forward, there's no one making that run. So the ball often flashes across that area and there's no one to tuck it in or the players open for the cutbacks are not open because they haven't been sucked. The defenders haven't been sucked in by that gravitational pull of that run. And we saw for the first goal with Mares crossing for De Bruyne, the run that 
Jesus makes not only occupies one of the centre backs from Real Madrid, uh, it was either Alaba or, or Militao, I can't remember, but it was also Valverde who was distracted by that run and didn't see De Bruyne running behind him over his other shoulder. He was sucked in towards towards Jesus. So Jesus managed to, to suck two or three players towards him and then there's an open lane for De Bruyne to score. So I thought he was absolutely crucial with his positional play as well as just his, his end product being much improved. It was a very good Manchester City performance. And I mean, if we were to just touch on the other Premier League sides in Europe, obviously Liverpool mm. also have their Champions League upcoming. Uh, it's tomorrow, isn't it? It is indeed. Tomorrow Playing against, against Villarreal. Villa, you know, Emery's Villarreal. That's the guy who's going to come up with a suitable game plan for Liverpool. <laughs> that's 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 the guy that you know that Everton should have hired. You know? Quite possibly. I think I agree would have been okay. To be yeah, honest, yeah, it would have been fantastic. No, um, Villarreal punching above their weight, but they've got no Gerard Moreno, so I'm not. Mm, they're probably going to play Dan Juma up front. Talk about. Mm. They've managed to rehabilitate a fair few Premier uh, League rejects, that. haven't they? Lacelso, Dan Juma, from Bournemouth to the. Champions League semi-finals, what a time. Well, that shows the profligacy of uh, English clubs in the transfer market sometimes. Absolutely. And um, I think Villarreal are a team who can deal with, uh, I guess, adversity because they're used to playing um, for some serious underdog relegation threatened sides across Europe. And they've also got like a lot of experience. Like, There's quite a few veteran players mm-hmm. like, um, you know, like Raul Albiol, for example. Yep. Um, Pareja. Uh, yes, Danny Pareja was the name was eluding uh, me. Um, they've got a lot of experience. So I don't think they're going to be overawed by Anfield because a lot of them have played there before. Yeah. So, um, you know they faced Liverpool earlier, so I'm I'm optimistic for a competitive match. But without Gerard Moreno, I think they might be lacking a little bit up front. Sure, but it's fun to see different teams try to tackle Liverpool, and it was fun to see how Benfica went about it and kind of posed a new kind of challenge mm. to to Liverpool. So I think. Villarreal will do a very similar thing and it'll be interesting to see how Jürgen tries to adapt to the new things because we know Unai Emery has a solid team and that'll be a very different solid team to Everton, for example. Yeah, he's the most meticulous preparer for specific matches that I think I've ever encountered. Um, Per the anecdotal evidence of the folders and, you know, uh, the the massive amounts of pre-game materials that the players are given... They get wore thin at Arsenal, but with a group of players at Villarreal who are potentially a little bit more humble and open to that sort of thing to make them better footballers, his message is resonating and also, you know, in his native language as well also always helps. So, yeah, I I think it's going to be a good match. Um, The other thing to cover is Real Madrid's horrible defensive performance might uh, be alleviated next season with the signing of Antonio Rudiger. Indeed, yes, possibly for free, I think, which is a on a free transfer. Wild. He's, he's turned down a contract extension at Chelsea, perhaps because they can't offer him one. Yeah, <laughs> not well, at the moment. Is this the beginning of the problems for Chelsea in the off season? Quite possibly. Yeah, well, if that sale isn't finalised soon, then they're going to be in trouble keeping some of these guys. But I'm of the opinion that Rudiger is one of the world's best central defenders. Yeah, and I think. Real Madrid need it because you, you saw, you know, Alaba was substituted early, injury permitting, but Miller Town made a horrendous error in the lead up to one of the uh, Manchester City goals, just complete air swing. So yeah, I, I'm, uh, yeah, I, I think Ancelotti was playing it cool in the post match interview. Just uh, raised his eyebrow and said, "I know nothing about it." You know, yeah. James Bond style as he always does, 
Uh, but, you know, he's he's always aloof on the touchline, but uh, it looks like that one's happening uh, for sure. And again, Real Madrid's making the most of the free transfers. Indeed, they 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 always do. And we'll just finish by mentioning West Ham and Leicester also with their European yep. semi-finals. West Ham coming up against Eintracht Frankfurt, uh, who of course Barcelona's slayers. Um, West Ham having beaten Lyon, which we Eintracht Frankfurt versus Barcelona was a hilarious game yeah. because it was. F- at the Camp Nou, full of Eintracht fans. Yeah. And what's happening, and everyone turns a blind eye to this, but the season tickets are massively expensive at Camp Nou, but you're not actually paying for that because you remake your money on the season tickets by selling off tickets to the games that you don't want to go to, that Barcelona fans, you've seen it all. You know, Eintracht Frankfurt in the Europa League, not a huge draw for no. Barcelona fans who are used to Champions League finals and yeah. so forth. Uh, so they all sold on their tickets. Uh, the difference was that it wasn't to tourists who were there to see Lionel Messi, but to crazy German fans <laughs> who made a raucous noise. And it actually sparked an inquest yeah. at Barcelona as to how this possibly could have happened. But everyone has been making loads of money off this system for years and years. So I don't think there's a big appetite to change it. Uh, but uh, yeah, Eintracht Frankfurt, uh, our own Aiden Frustich inside. Mm. Hopefully he gets some minutes and uh, and uh, I'm, I'm excited to see see what uh, what they can do against West Ham. Indeed, a West Ham side who got past Leon, which we thought they might do last time and they're mm. you know, a, a not great Leon side. So West Ham just doing West Ham things. Uh, we've said it multiple times how amazing David Moyes has done. That's what it's, I do. It's I incredible. win. <laughs> He does. He does. And he's do found that. his new marijuana Fellaini in Thomas Suchek, which is nice. I mean, you <laughs> think if, you know, if Everton had brought him back, you could have had Thomas Suchek. <laughs> you could have been, you know, scoring you know, a headed goal every two games off a corner. Could be in a Europa League semi final against Frankfurt. Alas. How things could have been different. And of course, Leicester City. And another really interesting one against Roma. Big game. Mm. Big game for. For well, all the sides that we've mentioned, obviously, but that'll be really fun to see Brendan and Jose go at it. Yeah, I think Brendan counts himself in that class as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's like, it's nice to come up against an equal once in a while, and that's why I'm excited about facing Jose. Well, I'm putting words in his no, mouth, yeah. but he would definitely say that. So Jamie Vardy made his return off the bench on the weekend. So interesting to see if he mm. plays a role. It would be nice how that goes. To the, the final chapter in uh, Jamie Vardy's, you know, life movie that's apparently been optioned. Yeah. And, big, you know, Leicester don't have anything else really that they're playing for this season. I'd say a similar thing about Roma. I mean, they're... That's been their saving grace this year. I mean, yeah. they've had a pretty bad Premier League campaign. They've returned to earth. But uh, going this far in the Europa League, I think, has, you know, kept the Wolves from, uh, from Rogers' door. Absolutely. And Roma as well. Probably won't make Champions League in the league, so... This is what they've got to play for. This is what they've got to play for. Tammy, Tammy Abraham in, uh, in great form for Roma this season. So uh, hopefully we see a bit of him uh, showing English sides what, uh, what they missed out on allowing him to go over to Serie A. If we were to say one more thing, mm. I'm going to just track back to the Premier League. We haven't really departed from the Premier League. Yeah. But, 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 but That's what Bruno Fernandes needs to start yeah, doing. Yeah. <laughs> Games being played in the Premier League. Uh, Crystal Palace and Leeds played out a nil-nil draw the other day. Not much to say about it. Palace were the better side, whatever. Didn't really matter. Not hugely consequential for mm. Palace. Vaguely consequential for Leeds, but they'll probably be fine. Well, you know, we'll I, see. I assume you're bringing this up for a reason. I am. I am. I just wanted to say that I really liked it at the end when they they, they kind of showed the 
post-match interviews of Patrick Vieira and Jesse Marsh and just not to play into the elitism of certain countries and accents and and how we perceive those <laughs> as managers, but there was just such this severe contrast between Patrick Vieira and Jesse Marsh that I just found really funny. I could hardly take Jesse Marsh seriously. You know, Patrick Vieira, you know, breaks it down. Oh, you know, we played very well, I think. Uh, you know, we've created some... That's a terrible French accent. I, I was practising before and it was better than that. I'm not, yeah. gonna, I'm not even going to continue. That was pathetic. You created some good chances. Yeah. Is that better? That's better. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I can do Vieira specifically. No, he, he's got it. Yeah, it's, it's a subtle French. Mm. Um, but, you know, he's, I, I believed him. I w- would trust him with my life. It was compelling. And then Jesse Marsh comes in. Well, <laughs> we're really happy with how we're playing. Yeah. Uh, there are some lots we had of some positives great, to great, take out Great of it. goal shots and uh, yeah. we had a shutout. So we, that's... Uh... And Calvin played a full 90, which was, <laughs> which was really, really great to see. And I just... There's a... There's a divi- the multiculturalism of the Premier League. How exciting, I suppose. Just the elitism coming from you today. It is. You love Bournemouth (laughs) and French people. And Patrick Vieira. (laughs) And, you know, Northerners and Americans can get stuffed. (laughs) Because Jesse Marsh has done such a good job that you hear him talk and you go, You just think Ted Lasso. You just go, what are you talking about? I don't trust you at all. You don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, elitism at its best. I only wish he was managing Crystal Palace so the Ted Lasso thing could be... I know yeah. there's a fictional team in that show, but they're clearly Crystal Palace, like, to me. Yeah. Um, so uh, it would have been a perfect parallel, but anyway. I have to finish. Not related to Steve Parrish, are you? I'm not. Okay. Not that I know of. Yeah. But, you know, Steve's a very wealthy man, so if there's a family <laughs> connection, I'm open to, you know, rediscovering long-lost relatives in that regard. <laughs> I would believe you if you told me he because he looks vaguely similar to you. Just there's something about his hey. facial structure that I go, that could be Josh's father, <laughs> uncle. I, I, I can't rule it out. Yeah. You know? let, let us know if so because... And then I'll have to start supporting Palace, I suppose, if I find <laughs> a family connection, the long lost... <laughs> Oh, dear. All right, we better go. It's, we should. It's, when we get into my family lineage, we know it's time to go. Thank you for your company tonight, Oscar, and uh, thank you all for tuning in. On the EPL show here on FNR, we'll speak to you again next time.